Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 30, the book of Acts, chapter 13, continued. We're going to continue in this rather long chapter 13 of the book of Acts, although we won't quite finish it. Um, There's much to be learned from this chapter about the person of Paul and about the formation of the gospel and how Paul views its effect upon the lives of both Jews and Gentiles. So our focus has shifted from Peter and the Holy Land to the Apostle Paul and the foreign lands where the, the bulk of the Jewish population resides. Now his mission to evangelize the Gentiles has begun now in earnest. But what we find is that at least to this point, the Gentiles that he's speaking to are God-fearers. That is, they're Gentiles who worship the God of Israel. And because they attend these Greek-speaking synagogues of the diaspora. Now we've also learned that while Paul is God's designated emissary to the Gentiles, he's neither the only one, nor is he in charge of the Gentile mission. And it's not as though he has neglected his fellow Jews by default. Since his main theater of operation is synagogues, He, of course, speaks at least as much to the Jews as he speaks to the Gentiles. Now, at a synagogue in Antioch, Paul is given an opportunity to address the congregation. It's a mixed congregation of of Jews and Gentiles. And he begins by giving a brief summation of the redemption history of Israel that reminds one of what the martyr Stephen said before the Sanhedrin. Logically, he begins with Abraham, the first Hebrew, and in but a few sentences he advances quickly from Abraham to Egypt, to the Exodus, to the conquering of Canaan, and then the subsequent era of the judges. Then he jumps to King Saul, the first king of Israel, and then quickly to King David. Let's reread a portion of Acts chapter 13 so we can establish the context for today's lesson. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, go to page 1378. 1378. We're going to start at verse 22. 22. After 40 years, God removed him and raised up David as a king for them, making his approval known with these words, I found David ben Ishai to be a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want. In keeping with his promise, God has brought to Israel from this man's descendants a deliverer, Yeshua. Now, before the coming of Yeshua, Yochanan, John, John the Baptist, proclaimed to all the people of Israel an immersion in connection with turning to God from sin. But as Yochanan was ending his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? Well, I'm not. But after me is coming someone, the sandals of whose feet I'm unworthy to untie. Brothers, 
sons of Abraham and those among you who are God-fearers. It is to us that the message of this deliverance has been sent. For the people living in Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize who Yeshua was or understand the message of the prophets read every Shabbat. So they fulfilled that message by condemning him. They could not find any legitimate ground for a death sentence. Nevertheless, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all these things written about him, he was taken down from the stake and placed in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He appeared for many days to those who had come up with him from the Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now his witnesses to the people. As for us, we are bringing you the good news that what God promised to the fathers He has fulfilled for us, the children, in raising up Yeshua. As indeed it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. And as for raising him up from the dead to return to decay no more, He said, I will give the holy and trustworthy things of David to you. This is explained elsewhere. You will not let your holy one see decay. For David did indeed serve God's purposes in his own generation. But after that, he died. He was buried with his fathers and he did see decay. However, the one God raised up did not see decay. Therefore, brothers, let it be known to you that through this man is proclaimed forgiveness of sins. That is, God clears everyone who puts his trust in this man, even regard in regard to all the things concerning which you could not be cleared by the Torah of Moses. Watch out then, so that this word found in the prophets may not happen to you. You mockers, look and marvel and die, for in your own time I am doing a work you simply will not believe, even if someone explains it to you. And as they left, the people invited Shaul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, to tell them more about these matters the following Shabbat. And when the synagogue meeting broke up, many of the born Jews and devout proselytes followed Shaul and Barnabas, who spoke with them and urged them to keep holding fast to the love and to the kindness of God. The next Shabbat, nearly the whole city gathered together to hear the message about the Lord. But when the Jews, who had not believed, saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and spoke up against what Paul was saying and insulted him. However, Paul and Barnabas answered boldly, It was necessary that God's word be spoken first to you, but since you're rejecting it and judging yourselves unworthy of eternal life, why, we're turning to the Goyim, to the Gentiles. For that is what Adonai has ordered us to do. I have set you as a light for the Gentiles to be delivered to the ends of the earth. The Gentiles are very happy to hear this. They honored the message about the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life came to trust. And the message about the Lord was carried throughout the whole region. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the women, God fears, of high social standing and the leading men of the city and they organized persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. However, Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust of their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the Talmudim, the disciples, were filled with joy and with the Ruach HaKodesh. What's Paul's point in repeating a history that surely at least the Jews in the crowd already have a working knowledge of? It is this. 
It is that the Old Testament and the Gospel of Yeshua confirm one another. To pretend, as is regularly done in modern times, that the Gospel does not rest upon the Torah and the prophets or to preach that the gospel stands alone independent of everything that came before it stands somewhere on a scale between false and foolish let's tuck away into our memory banks just who is speaking who is using Israel's history and the purpose of the Torah and the prophets to base his argument and his justification of Yeshua as the Messiah. It is the same Paul that institutional Christianity has for so many years says no longer has any regard for the Torah or the prophets, who believes the Torah and the prophets are dead and gone, and he proclaims that Yeshua has replaced all that came before him. The same Paul that Christianity says teaches that the Gentile church replaced Israel. Thus the conclusion is that all that matters for Christians begins at the book of Matthew and the teachings of the earliest Gentile church fathers. Well, here is what one of those early Gentile church fathers, John Chrysostom, said on the subject of Paul and of his viewpoint about the place of the Torah and the prophets. A piece that was written around 400 AD. This is taken from his homilies on the Acts of the Apostles. Chrysostom says this, Notice how Paul weaves his discourse from things present and from the prophets. Thus he says, from this man's seed according to the promise. Then he adduces John again, saying, by condemning, they fulfilled all that was written. Both the apostles as the witnesses of the resurrection, and David also bearing witness. For neither do the Old Testament proofs seem so cogent when taken by themselves, nor the later testimonies, the New Testament, apart from the former. Therefore it is through both that he makes his discourse trustworthy. I agree on most of those points with Chrysostom. My disagreement with him is that he makes it sound as though Paul is quoting and comparing Old Testament passages to New Testament passages. And that's not what's happening. The proof of this is that the New Testament would not even exist until one and one half centuries following Paul's death. Rather, everything Paul is teaching to this congregation at Antioch is taken only from the Tanakh the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Thus Chrysostom also makes it sound as though the revelation of the Gospel is a recent event. And the Old Testament knows only to anticipate its eventual coming. The reality is the Gospel is pronounced and developed in the Old Testament. And the New Testament merely identifies who the Anointed One is. That both the that is both the agent and the administrator of the gospel and now that the anointed one has come and gone what this means for mankind but Chrysostom's main point is that Paul clearly says 
that the Old Testament and the New Testament depend on one another, at least as concerns the gospel message. And that a Bible without the New Testament is only half the story. But a Bible without the Old Testament is also only half the story. A Bible without the New Testament leaves one still in anticipation of discovering who the Messiah shall be. This is a condition that Judaism suffers from to this day. A Bible without the Old Testament leaves one without the basis for even understanding the Gospel. For what a Messiah is or does. For how it is that we are to live these these redeemed lives. And what our faith roots are. And they're Hebrew faith roots. This is what mainstream Christianity suffers from to this day. A Bible is not a Bible unless it contains both Testaments. And both are given equal weight and relevance. In verse 23, Paul speaks of the one who will be the agent and the administrator of this gospel in terms of being a result of the promise. What promise is Paul speaking about? The promise given to the fathers of Israel, the patriarchs. A promise that was first given to Abraham. And that promise was pronounced in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, 1-3, we hear this. Now Adonai said to Abraham, Get out of your country, away from your kinsmen, away from your father's house, go to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you are to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. But I will curse those who curse you. And by you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It is the last few words of that promise that reveals the gospel message. But it is pretty hazy. It contains little substantive information. Thus it's important especially for believers to understand that the guarantee of the gospel, whatever it would eventually amount to, was given to and would happen through the Hebrews. The first Hebrew being Abraham. And yet Paul spent a fair amount of time in his historical summary speaking about a different part of that promise that was made to Abraham. The part about the land. That part was expounded upon by God to Abraham a little later on in Genesis in chapter 15. In chapter 15, 18 through 21, we hear this. That day Adonai made a covenant with Avram. I have given this land to your descendants. From the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the territory of the Cani, the Kenesi, the Kadmoni, the Hitti, the Prezi, the Rephaim, the Amori, the Kenani, the Gergashi, and the Yavusi. Thus God defines the specific land that is included in this promise, and He does it by defining it according to land that is currently occupied by ten named people groups. Altogether, this area of land is called the land of Canaan. 
So Paul is demonstrating that the land and the people and the promise and the gospel and therefore Yeshua are all organically and inseparably connected. Remove any one of these elements and what remains is incomplete. Thus says Paul in verse 23, in keeping with his promise, God, through David, a descendant of Abraham, has brought forth this deliverer, this anointed one, who is the agent of that promise. And that deliverer's name is Yeshua. Now I want to pause for just a moment to tell you something I think can help you to better understand the attitude of Judaism towards Christianity and towards Jesus. In a direct reaction, um, um, a retaliation really, against Paul, naming Yeshua as the Messiah, contained in a central part of Jewish liturgy that is practiced in every synagogue service, uh, is what is called the Amidah. The Amidah. Now the Amidah is really a prayer. But it consists of a number of blessings that are recited by the congregation. And among these several blessings is one that's called the Birkat Haminim. Birkat Haminim, or in English, the benediction against the heretics. This blessing was created by Judaism because the Messianic Jews and then Christian Gentiles associated Jesus with King David. That is, Jesus is the expected anointed one and deliverer who would come from the line of King David. To combat this, the Birkat Haminim blessing was added to the Amidah and it speaks against this association between Yeshua and David as heresy. And one of the ways it breaks this connection between King David and Jesus is by declaring that the Messiah will be none other than King David himself. Whether we want to attach the term resurrected or reanimated or reincarnated, that is what's intended by declaring that King David himself will be the Messiah. We find the root of this concept recorded in the Jerusalem Talmud and the Tosefta Berkot. Tosefta Berkot section. Berkot just means blessing, so the section on blessings. This is why Judaism demands that regardless of how it may be worded in the Holy Scriptures, David is always to be seen as a perfect man who never sinned. Because they understand, as do we, that according to Holy Scriptures, the Messiah must be perfect and never sin. There could be no better example for us of why certain erroneous beliefs are formed when a rigid doctrine is created by humankind to accomplish a specific agenda. And then, theologians work backwards from that doctrine 
by twisting and turning scripture passages in order to work to validate it. So after identifying Yeshua as the Messiah and King David's descendant, Paul then speaks about the role that Yochanan, John, John the Baptist, play, uh, played by immersing people, Jewish people. And, and this was a means of preparing the way for Messiah Yeshua. Now the important point made in verse 24 is that the immersion, the baptism, follow me, was not made in Yeshua's name. Rather, it was symbolic of the worshiper having made a decision to repent from his sins. You follow that? In other words, whereas in Messianic Judaism and in Christianity, when we are properly immersed, there's no need to be immersed again. Here with John, the immersion he gave was essentially only a preliminary immersion. So contrasted with today, when we are immersed into the name of Yeshua as our Savior, Lord and King, but also as a declaration of us having repented from sin, John's immersion was only concerning repentance from sin. Nothing else. Therefore, Paul says that John the Baptist asked, Who do you suppose I am? And then said that someone would come after him of a measurably greater worth than he. So what John accomplished, when we think of it temporally, was the first step of a two-step process. Step one, repent from your sins. Step two, identify with Yeshua as the one who pays the price for your sins and then ritually purifies you. Today, because Christ has appeared, He's made known who He is, He's made known what, made known what we must do, it's a one-step process. One immersion is sufficient for all of those purposes. Now up to this point, we could probably characterize everything Paul has been telling his audience as history, theory, and theology. But now he makes practical application. To the congregation, he stands and he says essentially, this applies to you. It's for you that Abraham was given the promise. It's for you that King David's line was chosen to bring forth Messiah. It's for you that Yeshua who came from that line died on the cross as a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. Even those who constitute his audience are spelled out. One, he says it's the sons of Abraham's family, meaning Hebrews. Two, God-fearers, Gentiles who worship the God of Israel. All are included. Racial, ethnic, national boundaries have been crossed as concerns the work of Messiah. 
Paul now condemns those who condemned Yeshua. Now I want to point out that he specifically calls out the Jews of Jerusalem as bearing the responsibility. Not all Jews in general. The Jews of Jerusalem. Yes, the crucifixion happened in Jerusalem. So obviously, it was the Jerusalem Jews who called for it. But we've discussed for a while now that the Jews of Jerusalem were in general those who desired to be at the power center of Judaism, which was in Jerusalem. So they paid more attention to political issues, to religious matters. They were more concerned about the details. They were more activist. And this is where the greatest concentration of zealots lived and operated. And of course, Jerusalem is where the Romans had the most problems with the Jewish people. Not out in the countryside, not out in the diaspora. And why did these Jerusalem Jews do this dastardly thing of turning against one of their own, Jesus of Nazareth? Because, says Paul in verse 27, they didn't recognize who Yeshua was. Why didn't they recognize who Yeshua was? Why? Because they didn't understand the scripture readings taken from the books of the prophets that were read every single Shabbat in their weekly synagogue service. And so, ironically... By not listening, by not paying any attention, by not understanding, these Jerusalem Jews unwittingly brought about these prophecies concerning Yeshua by their very act of condemning Him. These prophecies prophecies apparently just flew right over their heads plainly tell us of such things as Yeshua would be hated by his fellow Jews for no good reason. That was prophesied in Isaiah 49.7. A friend would turn against him and turn him over for execution. That was prophesied in Psalm 41. The price for his friend's betrayal was 30 pieces of silver. That was prophesied in Zechariah 11.12. Yeshua would be executed by means of crucifixion. That was predicted in Psalm 22.17. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. That was predicted in Isaiah 53.9. He would arise alive from the grave. That was prophesied in Isaiah 53.9 and 10 and in Psalm 2. He would ascend to God. He would sit at the Father's right hand in heaven. That was prophesied in Psalm 16 and 11 and in Psalm 68. There's much, much more. So why didn't these Jews who regularly went to synagogue week after week, year after year, who heard the Haftarah reading of the prophets, heard these prophecies had the opportunity to ask questions, saw Yeshua in person, and what was happening before their very eyes, why did they not connect the painfully obvious dots? Why? How did the learned Torah scholars and the priests 
and the teachers and the synagogue leaders miss it. The event that the entire Torah pointed towards that the prophets said they longed to see happened. And most of the Jews of Jerusalem were not only blind to it, they helped bring about the most unsavory parts of the prophets' prophecies and were completely aware of their personal involvement in it. What did Messiah say? Do you remember? As He hung there in agony, as thousands of the very people He came to save mocked Him, in Luke 23, 33 and 34, when they came to the place called the skull, they nailed Him to a stake. And they nailed the criminals to stakes, one on the right, one on the left, and Yeshua said, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand. Perhaps they wouldn't understand because they didn't want to understand. See, here then is my greatest fear. For those who sit before me today who are listening to my voice online, for those who sit in pews and comfortable chairs in churches worldwide, a fear that is spoken by the same one who asks forgiveness for those who are persecuting him unto death, but ought to have known better. In Matthew 7, 21-23, here states my fear. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we teach in your name? Didn't we expel demons in in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? then I'll tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those Jews who insisted on Yeshua's crucifixion were obviously oblivious to the very prophecies they were helping to fulfill as well as to the prophecies Yeshua came to fulfill. And so many who fill the pews of houses of worship today are in danger of missing out on the prophecies of God, maybe even being the subjects of some of those prophecies in a very unbecoming way. Because they don't pay attention to what's happening right in front of their eyes. Because they don't seriously study. So they don't know. God's Word. Leaders and teachers are much to blame because their flocks aren't taught God's Word. Rather, man-made traditions and doctrines, that's what's taught as holy and true. The unfortunate truth is many of us prefer to hear teachings that make us feel better about ourselves. Often we are attracted to houses of worship that tell us what we want to hear. We seek out, we accept only the most comfortable doctrines. 
Ones that fit our personal lifestyles, make our lives easier, validate our wants and desires. And then only rarely do we ever compare them to the Holy Scriptures to see if these doctrines are correct. The Jews of Yeshua's day got their teaching in synagogues. There they were taught halakha, a fusion of Bible, doctrine, and custom. Most Jews considered Bible, doctrine, and custom as one and the same. So, few questioned the the status quo. And when the Jerusalem Jews insisted that Yeshua should be executed, it was because they had no interest in knowing the truth, only in practicing their religion. The same ones who filled those synagogues without fail every Shabbat demanded the death of their prophesied Messiah. And when he comes again, and he is coming, an enormous number of self-proclaimed believers believers will find themselves rejected, we are told. Not my words, Christ's words. They will find themselves rejected by Messiah because they had no interest in the truth, only in practicing their religion. Suppose I ought to say I'm sorry for being so blunt. So tough, so judgmental. But time's too short. Time is too short. The consequences are too great to beat around the bush. I want us all to develop a healthy fear of God. I want us all to examine ourselves and question why we believe what we believe. I want us all to mature in the Lord, to obey Him, even when it means real lifestyle changes. I want us all to discover by learning God's word where we might be wrong. And if we're wrong, then then we should change our minds. And that is because whether in death or in life, our day of reckoning is nearly upon us. We don't know the day or the hour any more than did those Jews of Jerusalem who condemned themselves by condemning their own Savior. But by believing the doctrines of men over the Word of God, we put ourselves in the greatest danger. Well, in verse 32, Paul explains that the very purpose of him and of other disciples of Yeshua who have come to Antioch to bring this good news of Yeshua that was promised to the fathers was so that everyone could hear it. What fathers, again, is he speaking of? When the Bible speaks of the fathers, it's referring to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Paul says that the gospel was first presented to Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, long before Moses, long before his designated prophets. God was progressively revealing his plan of salvation, but always, always through his chosen people, the Hebrews. Then, interestingly, Paul points out some verses from a specific psalm. 
a psalm that was very popular in that era. Let's read this short but powerful psalm so that we can have the entire context before us. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it begins on page 791. Psalm 2, page 791, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Why are the nations in an uproar, the people's grumbling in vain? The earth's kings are taking positions, leaders conspiring together against Adonai and his anointed. They cry, let's break their fetters, let's throw off their chains. He who sits in heaven laughs. Adonai looks at them in derision. Then in his anger he rebukes them, terrifies them in his fury. I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the decree. Adonai said to me, you are my son. Today I became your father. Ask of me. I will make the nations your inheritance. The whole wide world will be your possession. You will break them with an iron rod. You'll shatter them like a clay pot. Therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, you judges of the earth. Serve Adonai with fear. Rejoice, but with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish along the way when suddenly his anger blazes. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now I realize that you and I have the benefit of hindsight. But how can anyone in Paul's day read this psalm and not understand this cannot be about some human earthly king. I mean, could David or some other king really have thought that every nation in the world would want to come against him and that to serve the God of Israel is the same as serving this king? And that the statement in this psalm about those who take refuge in this person will be blessed by by God could not possibly be talking about taking refuge under a regular king unless delusions of grandeur were running rampant in that king's mind. Yet somehow this striking prophetic psalm, many other Bible passages like it, were misconstrued and they were just glossed over. Likely they were allegorized, as we do way too much of today, to make them fit a current doctrine. Verse 34 brings up a point that Paul will use to make a common sense argument. It is that Yeshua arose from the dead, but he didn't suffer from any decay. The gruesome reality is that the reason for embalming is to interrupt the natural decaying process that begins immediately upon death. Jews were not embalmed. The lack of decaying in Yeshua's body is an important piece of evidence for Paul. Further, Paul quotes another messianic passage from Isaiah 55.3 and he says that the anointed one will receive things promised 
to King David. So here's more proof that despite the claim in the Birkat Hamanim of the Amada that David himself is going to be the Messiah, that man-made tradition goes directly against Scripture and this passage in Isaiah is one such example. So, says Paul, David died. David was buried. David's body decayed. He speaks of it as just common knowledge. But the anointed one, the anointed one of God, who was raised from the dead, did not suffer decay. Ergo, David cannot possibly be the Messiah. Paul now draws a fitting conclusion from all the evidence he's presented. He says that it is through Yeshua that one can receive forgiveness of sins. He goes further, and I suspect that what he's about to say may have been the hardest part of his conclusion for the Jews at this synagogue to accept. He says that anyone who puts their trust in Yeshua then they can be forgiven sins that even the Torah of Moses could not forgive. It's hard to express in words the highest regard that all Jews, no matter their location, had for the Torah and for Moses. So to say that something or someone could do more than the Torah or Moses could do, well, those are fighting words. So what does Paul mean by this? See, there are many laws and commandments listed in the Torah. Judaism says there's 613 of them. For each law, there is a prescribed remedy, should that law be broken. For simple theft, for example, the stolen goods had to be returned along with a 20% penalty. And the thief was then required to go to the temple, offer an animal sacrifice in addition. If the perpetrator had a contrite heart, and if he did these things, he was forgiven for his sin. It was like that for almost all the Torah laws, but not for every law. For some laws, the crime was considered by God as to be so grave that the only remedy was the perpetrator's life had to be forfeited. That is, no amount of compensation to a victim, no altar sacrifice for atonement could be performed. Forgiveness was impossible. And among the sins for which the law of Moses offered no means of atonement were things such as murder and adultery. The Bible also says that high-handed sins cannot be atoned for. That is, these are the worst of the worst sins. And they are those sins that are committed with an intentional, rebellious, heinous, blasphemous intent. So a sin that might otherwise have had a means of atonement, let's say for manslaughter, might be elevated to murder if it was committed in a high-handed way. Therefore, no means of atonement was available. 
Paul says that even high-handed sins that could not be atoned for in the Torah by an altar sacrifice could be atoned for by trust in Messiah Yeshua. Boy, there's some good news. This passage is more controversial than it might seem. The rather standard mainstream, it's not universal, but it's pretty standard, mainstream Christian take on this passage is that it means that the Torah of Moses could in no way justify a sinner. That is, these Bible interpreters make justification the point instead of atonement. As usual, this is because those particular interpreters choose to begin with a man-made doctrine and then work backwards from it to try and validate it. The doctrine in this case is, in a nutshell, there is no real forgiveness available in the Torah ever. Forgiveness is only in Jesus Christ. The doctrine, that doctrine is contradictory to the plain teachings of the Torah. So the doctrine's purpose is only to demean the Torah as worthless, faulty from its inception, and now thankfully dead and gone. This passage in Acts 13.39, at least to me, is plainly worded. And in investigating the Greek, where the, 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 the key word is dikeu, the plain meaning of that word is righteous, not justify. It speaks of Yeshua being able to make righteous a person who committed crimes, who broke the Torah law, for which there was no remedy for it in the Torah. It in no way implies that every Torah law broken had no remedy to bring that person back to a a righteous condition by being forgiven. But that is what many interpreters say this passage means. If that is true, then we have a real quandary on our hands. Because we get dozens and dozens of statements like this example in the Torah concerning when a person sins, breaks a Torah law, and then performs the prescribed sacrifice of atonement. Don't turn there, just listen to this. Leviticus chapter 4, 32-35. If he brings a lamb and his, as his sin offering... He is to bring a female without defect, lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and slaughter it as a sin offering in the place where they slaughter burnt offerings. The Kohen, the priest, is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar for burnt offerings. All its remaining blood he is to pour out around the base of the altar. All of its fat he is to remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice for peace offerings. And the priest is to make it go up in smoke on the altar on top of the offerings for Adonai made by fire. Thus the priest will make atonement for him in regard to the sin he committed and he will be forgiven. Over and over, more times than I can count. This is the standard formula in the Torah for explaining the procedure for when a person sins. Just kind of changes up on what the offering itself is. And the result, if performed sincerely and properly, is always forgiveness. Always. 
So real forgiveness occurred under the Levitical sacrificial system. Therefore, it cannot be that the law never actually gave forgiveness and restored righteousness. What we see, however, is that the law in the law of Moses, God grades sins based on their seriousness. The greater the sin, the more costly the sacrifice. From a cheap dove or a pigeon for a minor sin, all the way up in steps to the most expensive, a mature adult bull for a major sin. What this shows us is, despite the standard Christian bumper sticker sticker doctrine that a sin is a sin is a sin, that stealing a candy bar is no worse to God than murdering your neighbor because they're both sins, is simply false on every level. There are less and more serious sins. And they thus require various levels of atonement reflected by the cost of the animal involved as well as lower and greater levels of of punishment and other consequences that are required. But for the worst of the worst sins, for blasphemy, adultery, murder, the sin is so serious that no atoning sacrifice can be costly enough. So, sacrifices, no sacrifices prescribed for it. The perpetrator is cut off from God forever and from his physical life forever. He's executed. Paul explains that Yeshua can even atone for sins such as these, for which under the law of Moses forgiveness was not possible. And as much as I personally count on the nearly limitless capacity of Messiah to blot out my sins, there's still a limit. And it's pronounced in Mark 3, verses 28 and 29. Yes, I tell you that people will be forgiven all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. However, someone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. But the other caveat that must be added is this. Just as the Torah law usually required a consequence paid for by the perpetrator to the victim of his his crime, in addition to the sacrifice paid to God that forgave him not for what he did to his earthly victim, but rather for the trespass he committed against God, never does the Torah kind of forgiveness or the Yeshua kind of forgiveness negate the earthly consequences of our sins. Never. God may, and thank you Lord, He does, forgive our eternal penalty. But our earthly penalty usually remains. A murderer does not escape execution, even as a believer in Yeshua. But he can escape eternal damnation on a spiritual level. Trust in Christ is not our universal get-out-of-jail-free card. Our actions will still have consequences. We'll conclude chapter 13, get into Acts 14 next week.